All right, Psalm 102. I want to begin reading in verse 12. We'll read down through verse 14. I want to make sure that we have some time for prayer tonight. But Psalm 102, verse 12, But you, O Lord, abide forever, and your name to all generations. You will arise and have compassion on Zion, for it is time to be gracious to her, for the appointed time has come. Surely your servants find pleasure in her stones and feel pity for her dust. And of course we saw here when we looked at the structure of this, you have verse 13 that God is going to do something and the reason is, the first reason is the first four, for it is time to be gracious to her. Second reason, for the appointed time has come. And then the third reason is in verse 14, the word surely there could also be translated for or because your servants find pleasure or favor in her stones and feel pity for her dust. And so we've identified, <coughs> excuse me, we've identified the afflicted one as who? <coughs> excuse me, as Jesus Christ Himself, the incarnate Son. And the reason why I'm wording it that way is because we know at the end of this psalm that these are words that the Father said to the Son. But the Son took on human flesh and dwelt among us. And He did that at His incarnation. And so the afflicted one, or the weary one, or the one who is in distress is the incarnate Son for God of God. And he is he's giving a cry or a prayer <coughs> excuse me <coughs> for help. Why? Well, <coughs> in verse ten it says, Because of your indignation and your wrath. So the indignation of God, <coughs> God the Father is being poured out upon His Son. God has lifted Him up. And did He lift Him up? He did lift Him up at Calvary. God has lifted Him up and cast Him away. And we know that that event occurred because Psalm 22 begins this way. My God, my God, why have you forsaken, or the word is abandoned? And that's what you do when you cast something away, right? You, you abandon it. <clears throat> you have abandoned me. And we know that at that moment, <clears throat> there was a mysterious transaction between God the Father and God the Son as God the Father reconciled the world unto Himself through Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Christ, as it were, absorbed the full wrath of God for sin. And we know that <clears throat> after that there was this fellowship restored because no longer does he say my god my god he says father into your hands I commit my spirit. Now that's not being cast off, right? <clears throat> that's being received. And so <clears throat> there's this indignation and wrath not for David's sins, that would be just. 
Christ died and bore our transgressions. He did not suffer for Himself. And this was all in spite of the incarnate Son giving His life as a perfect burnt offering. And He's praying for His life to be extended. And it's critical that His life is extended because His life being extended affects the extension of our life. Right? If He died and was buried and wasn't resurrected, what hope do we have? None. But His life was extended. He was resurrected from the dead. Therefore, believers in Christ have great hope that our life will not be abandoned in the grave, but that our life, as it were, would also be extended. As He lives, hear this, as He lives, so we live. Everybody see that? So He's praying for that. You could almost say that He's praying for this on our behalf. On our behalf as the Incarnate Son. Well, then you have this abrupt shift in attention between verses 10 and 11 to verses 12 and following. So he's withering away like grass, but in contrast, verse 12, the Lord abides forever in His name to every generation. And so at this point, you're kind of saying, well, how does this come into play? Because he's only been praying concerning his own personal affliction, his own personal distress. However, what we learn is this. His afflictions and his distress and his bearing God's wrath and indignation has something to do with the redemption of Zion and the people of God. It has something to do with that. Because folks, up to this point, did you notice in verse 13? You will arise and have compassion on who? Well, you wouldn't have expected that, would you? If you were reading down through the first 11 verses and you got down and said, Lord, you abide forever, you're going to arise and have compassion on me. Right? That's what you would be expecting. This is the first time Zion's even mentioned in this psalm. But there it is. As a result of the afflicted one and his afflictions is going to have some connection, some union, either in part or in whole with God's redemption of his people. And so he says in verse 12, that the Lord abides forever. And folks, because the Lord abides forever, because Yahweh, God the Father, abides forever, then the writer, this afflicted one, this incarnate Son, is assured because He abides forever. He takes assurance that He Himself also is going to abide forever. He's encouraging himself in his prayer. And folks, our continuance 
depends on the incarnate Son's continuance because He is the second Adam. So you got all this, I think. We don't want to pour too much in it. And every time I go in here and look at it, I'm saying, you know, am, am I pouring too much of my understanding of the New Testament into this? I might be, but I don't think so. I think all that is here. Fully explained in the New Testament. But here it's hinted at for those who have eyes to see it. Now folks, in verses 13 through 15, what we find is the afflicted one, in spite of his despair, and in spite of his afflictions, and in spite of his being withered away like grass, he has great hope. That kind of doesn't go together, right? Great distress, great hope. Great discouragement and concern, great hope. doesn't seem like those two things go together. But they are here in the text. Look at the hope. You, verse 13, you will arise and do what? You will have compassion on Zion. Is that not hope? That is hope. And of course, down in verses 15 and following, here's a hope. The nations are going to fear the name of the Lord and all the kings of the earth your glory. Isn't that great hope? And so he has this great hope. Now I want to show you here in our English translation some words that are similar that if, if I was you, I would, I would mark them and make some type of connection between these words. If you notice in verse 13, <clears throat> he says, you will arise and have what on Zion? Compassion. Okay. Compassion. <clears throat> now look at verse 14. Surely your servants find pleasure in her stones and feel what? Pity. There you go. There's compassion on her dust. So is God feeling compassion? His servants are feeling compassion. Look at verse 13 again. You will arise and have compassion on who? On Zion. Look down at verse 16. For the Lord has built up who? Zion. You see the connection there between those two words. Look in verse 13 again. You will arise and have compassion on Zion, for it is time to be what? Gracious. Gracious. The word there means to show favor. Look at verse 14. Surely your servants find what? That's the same Hebrew word. Surely your servants will find favor in her stone, will find pleasure in her stone. If you look at verse 14, you've got, surely your servants find pleasure, favor in what? Her stones, and they're showing compassion for her what? For her dust. What are stones and dust? That's building materials, right? 
Okay. Look down at verse 16. <clears throat> For the Lord has done what to Zion? Built up. The term there could actually be translated rebuilt. So you got the materials, you got the compassion, you got the favor, you got the object, you got <clears throat> you got the 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 servants feeling in exactly the same way. All of this is going on here within these verses. So the afflicted one who is praying has great hope in the midst of all the wrath that he is feeling and being cast away that the result of it would abound not only his own personal hope, but the ramifications, the hope for God showing his favor on Sion. And folks, there is a lesson in here for us. <clears throat> when we are under trial, and it is a long trial, we can actually come to the place where we will say in our heart, if not with our mouth, it's hopeless. Am I right about that? Mm -hmm. We can look at the circumstances of life. <clears throat> we can look at what's around us. We can look at our bodily health. We can look at our affliction. And if it goes on for a while, in our heart, we will say it's hopeless. And if anybody had a right to be hopeless, it is this afflicted one. He's walking in the way of the Lord. And as he's walking in the way of the Lord, he's weakened. He's walking in the way of the Lord, but as he's walking in the way of the Lord, he feels like his life's going to be cut short. He feels close to death, doesn't he? He actually feels the oppression of God's enemies that are rallying around him because of what they perceive as weakness, like, like animals around a, a weak babe out in the jungle to take it down. And folks, a lot of times when those things come in our life, we start out very hopeful. But as we pray... <clears throat> And things don't happen immediately. The rescue doesn't happen immediately. We start getting weary. And we can actually get to the place where we say it's hopeless. Now folks, we have illustration of that in our Bible. And I want you to turn to Jeremiah chapter 18. <coughs> Jeremiah chapter 18. And you know that Jeremiah is preaching that the Lord is going to judge that nation. And in Jeremiah 18, <clears throat> we have illustration of the potter and the clay. And Jeremiah goes down to the potter's house. And as he's watching that potter, the potter's got this clay on the wheel. And the wheel is turning. 
And the potter's hand is working that clay to make something. And lo and behold, the clay is marred. There's something wrong in the clay. So what does the potter do? The potter remakes the clay so that it would become a proper vessel. Everybody following me? So Jeremiah is observing this and the Lord says in verse 6, Can I not, O house of Israel, deal with you as this potter does? Declares the Lord, Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. But were they marred? Were they corrupt and fallen? And so what God was going to do is that God is going to bring calamity upon them. And we know that this is the Babylonian judgment. However, he says, verse 8, If that nation against which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent concerning the calamity I'm planning to bring on it. So what's he telling Israel? You're like this clay. And you're corrupt. But if you would turn to me like a potter with a clay, I would remake you into a proper vessel. And then he applies it to the nations. Well, look at verse 11. (coughs) He tells Jeremiah to go speak this to the men of Judah. And he says, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am fashioning calamity against you and devising a plan against you. All turn back each of you from his evil way and reform your ways and your deeds. He's not telling them to turn over a new leaf. He's telling them to come back to me so that I can remake you. (coughs) Verse 12. He tells Jeremiah what they're going to say. But they will say what? It's hopeless. It's hopeless. We're too far gone. The Babylonians are too near. So folks, what I'm telling you is we can be brought to a place in our circumstances, where we will say in our heart, it's what? It's hopeless. But God says it's not. God says it's not because He's a good potter. Now folks, if I tell God it's hopeless, this is the counsel of the Lord to that nation. If I say in response to that counsel, it's hopeless, no way, no way God will turn this back. Too far gone. I'm rejecting that counsel. (coughs) If 
Folks, there's only one thing left that you can do. What is it? You walk after your own counsel. Right? If I reject the counsel of the Lord by saying it's hopeless, what's left for me to do? Go my own way. Everybody see that? And that's exactly what he says. Verse 12, they'll say it's hopeless because we're going to follow our own plans and each of us will act according to the stubbornness of our evil heart. Now, I'm sure they didn't word it that way. But that's the way God worded it. That was the reality of the situation. But folks, as we go back to Psalm 102, our afflicted one didn't say that, did he? He did not say it was hopeless. In fact, <coughs> he was absolutely assured that the Lord would arise in compassion on Zion, that his suffering was their hope. His suffering was their hope. And folks, Christ's suffering for us is our hope, isn't it? It's our only hope. He suffered passively our judgment and He suffered in His act of obedience for our act of obedience. In other words, Christ fulfilled the penalty. Christ fulfilled my obedience. Aren't you thankful? He obeyed for me. And He suffered for me. That was His hope. That is our hope. And so in the following verses, the Lord is going to arise and have compassion on Zion. Why? Verse 13, because it is time to be gracious to her. That's a fascinating verse. Why is the Lord going to have compassion on Zion? Because it's what? It's time. It's the right time to do it. And folks, you know what Galatians says, right? In the fullness of time, Christ came. The right time. It's the right time for God to do this. And secondly, he says, for the appointed time has come. Now folks, do you know what an appointed time is? If I go over to my brother here and I say, hey brother, let's go out for lunch. He says to me, what time? I say, hey, can you be there at 2? He says what? I can be there at 2. So we both show up at the restaurant at what time? The appointed time. Everybody everybody following me? Folks, the appointed time takes two people to agree on a time. So was it the right time to show favor to Zion? But it was also the mutually agreed time between the Father and the Son for this to happen. 
It was the appointed time it has come. And folks, you know our Lord kept saying that, right? He would say, my hour is not yet come. And then He would say, my hour has come. It was a mutually agreed time in the Trinitarian being between God the Father and God the Son. It was a mutually agreed time and it had come. And He has great hope in this. That's an amazing depth that you could think on for a long time. But what I'm telling you is, He's taking great hope in this. In other words, folks, it's happening just like it was agreed to. Don't you get encouraged when you see the Scripture being fulfilled? That's what He's encouraged in. And that mutually agreed time and that appropriate time to show favor to Zion, it deals with Zion and it deals with building blocks. Verse 14, that the servants of Yahweh, the servants of God the Father, find pleasure or favor in those stones. Now, of course, literally on earth, Jerusalem's going to be demolished. Those walls are going to fall down. And the implication here that a Jew would understand is when you're talking about stones and dust, you're talking about building materials that are in rubble. Right? It's just like you're outside of the city, everything's collapsed, everything's fallen down, We know from verse what? We know from verse 16 that the Lord is going to rebuild it. So it has collapsed. But God's servants find pleasure in those stones and in those dust. And when I was reading through here, and I looked up the Hebrew term for dust... It's the same term when He made Adam out of the dust of the earth. I don't know if there's a correlation there. But I'm just saying that when I read dust and I looked up that term and did a trace on it, boom, there it was. This is the second Adam. And He's there suffering so that God the Father would show favor on Zion at the mutually agreed time. And folks, you recall that we took time to comb through our New Testament about the word Zion. In the New Testament, what does Zion refer to? The heavenly what? the heavenly Jerusalem. We know in the New Testament that the apostles referred to believers as living stones. But folks, we also have a hint of this, possibly, also in our New Testament. I want you to turn to the book of Acts, chapter 15. 
This passage has always intrigued me. And I am not sure that I really have a full, mature understanding of it. But Psalm 102 is talking about rebuilding Zion. It's talking about the stones and the dust, the building materials. And of course we know that the dynasty of David had fallen, right? Those kings that had proceeded from the seed of David were corrupt. you got Manasseh. you got all of these wicked kings that are there. In fact, God's sending judgment from Babylon because of what Manasseh did in that nation. The house of David had collapsed into ruins. <clears throat> and in Acts chapter 15... James gets up in verses 13 and following, and he's, they're, they're trying to deal with the inclusion of the Gentiles. And James says in verse 14, Simeon has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. With this the words of the prophets agree, just as it's written. Now he's going to, He's going to have a loose quote from Amos. But listen to what he says. After these things, I will return and I will rebuild. Everybody see that? I will rebuild the tabernacle of who? David, which has fallen. And I will rebuild its ruins. And I will restore it. So that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from long ago. So what is James saying? He's saying that the Lord has rebuilt the house of who? David. In what person? Christ, who was that promised seed. And he's going to rebuild that tent of David because it had collapsed. And he's going to rebuild its ruins. And he's going to restore it so that all the nations would receive a blessing out of it. Right? Well, what does Psalm 102 say? Does Psalm 102 talk about rebuilding? Well, folks, did you notice in verse 15? So the nations will what? Fear the Lord. And James says, he doesn't say to this agree the prophet, singular. He says the prophets, plural agree with this. And folks, that really is, what we're really seeing here is the Gospel. We're seeing the incarnate Son who was afflicted because of our afflictions, who suffered our wrath, whose life was cut short, but God extended it by raising Him from the dead, so that He becomes the second Adam. 
He is the promised king of the seed of David so that David's house will be be rebuilt because it had collapsed. And part of that rebuilding, James says, is so that all the nations who are called by His name would be in His kingdom. Are we going to be in His kingdom? Are we going to be in the millennial kingdom? And we will be with His everlasting kingdom into the new heavens and into the new earth. And folks, from this we learn a very great truth. It's a truth that Paul understood. It's a truth that you and I don't like. And it's this. Paul would say in 2 Corinthians, I'm dying so that you will live. The Messiah is dying so that we will what? Live. Paul's dying so that the Corinthians live. Paul's dying so that Christ would be seen in his body. The life. And folks, that's exactly our Savior. So here's the conclusion as we go to prayer. We can't skip out on the sufferings of Christ. But we can have hope that if we would die to ourselves, we would see the life of Christ live through us. And there would be the possibility of others coming to Christ because Christ lives through us. Our sufferings, their life. We're not atoning for our sin. We're not making up the lack of anything. But we're becoming like our Master. Everybody see that? Paul understood that. That's called living out the Gospel of Jesus Christ. So let's go to Him in prayer.